0: Yep. So I love being at this church. Uh, There's several things I love about this church, and one of them is your announcements. I have seriously told other churches that one of the things that impresses me about this church is that your announcements are just as focused on the ministry you're doing outside of the building as it is what's going on inside the building. Also, I love Kip, I love Josh, um, and um, the Hinkles. They all have a strong connection to the church that I work at in... Abilene. I'm actually from originally Arkansas, and my wife, I married a Texan, and if you don't know this, Texans love themselves some Texas. Um, a couple of years ago, my wife and our kids were walking along the Abilene Zoo, and I was like, you know, Abilene really is a neat city. And then I was like, sheesh, this is how it starts. You know, one minute you're like, this is a really nice city, and the next minute you're like, You know, Texas is the only state that can fly the flag as high as the other, the American flag, which is a true thing that people often remind me of living in Texas. Um, So I love this church and I'm really grateful to be here with you this morning. My wife and I, we have five kids. Um, Leslie just had her annual baby two months ago. And the other four babies, Leslie went natural for some reason. And this time she got an epidural, which was so much easier on me. Because I kid you not, natural childbirth has been really difficult on me the last four times. <laughs> but we got an epidural, and after uh, a couple of minutes of having an epidural, the anesthesiologist left the room. And then all of a sudden, my wife, um, she passed out. And her neck looked like her neck was starting to swell, and her eyes were wide open. And it was just me and a young nurse there. And I started screaming. Help! Somebody help! And I, I, I panicked so much because it looked like my wife was having a seizure or a stroke or something that the young nurse called rapid response. And if you don't know what that means, it means that every available nurse and doctor, anybody who has any medical training comes running into the room. So 20 people come running into the room and they basically show me where to stand and look terrified while I wait for this to pass, whatever it is. And the whole time I'm thinking I'm losing my wife. I'm thinking she's dying. So I'm just, you know, praying a very theologically sophisticated prayer, like, please, God, please, God, please, God, please, God. And, you know, don't walk towards the light, Leslie. You know how incompetent I would be with all the children. Please don't leave me. And the only experience in my life that I can I can compare something like that to is about a year and a half ago, we were at ACU's movie on the hill, which is where they wait till nighttime about a 1,000 people come out, and they show like a kid's movie. Um, it starts at 7 and it ends at 9. Uh, we lost my daughter at, at a, as it ended. You know, we got so many kids, and like Jim Gaffigan says, having four kids is like you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. And so at one point, we we're, we're looking over at um, something else, and our 2-year-old Hannah got mixed up and thought she was going with somebody else or should, thought she was going with her mom, and went, grabbed somebody else's leg. And the first 20 seconds or so, you don't want to look like a horrible parent. So you're trying to play it cool, like, um, Hannah, where are you? Come on back. Stop. We're not playing hide and seek. But after about 30 seconds go by, you don't care what anybody thinks anymore. You start yelling and screaming anything to find your kid. And eventually you find her. She's on the, you know, she crossed the street with the family that picked up a spare child And I say all that to say something really important that I would love to get into our hearts this morning. A lot of times when we talk about God, I wonder if we know what we're saying says much more about us than it does about God. You know, we talk about people like they're lost, right? Well, what does that mean? Because I think a lot of times when we talk about God, we talk about going and finding God. That, and we're always going to find Him on some mountaintop or a beach somewhere. We, we talk about God like God is the one lost. That we're going to go out and find Him. But the way Jesus talks about God is that God is actually searching for us. He, he talks about how there's this woman who you know, has lost her dowry, uh, uh, some money. And she searches, she turns the house upside down looking for it. And when she finds it, she throws a party He talks about God as a shepherd who loses his sheep and throws basic economics out the window because he leaves the 99 that he has to go find the one that he doesn't. He talks about God as if he's a dad who has a son who has left and the entire time the dad is watching, waiting, looking, hoping that his son will turn around and come home. When Jesus talks about God, it is not about you finding God. It's about God finding you. That God is actually on the look. And when we talk about people as lost, and I get, you know, some of you that may put a bad taste in your mouth, I get it. Because sometimes it's been used as a, way, a word, a label, to write off an entire group of people. But when the Bible talks about lost people, it, don't forget, lost means loved. Lost means someone is searching for them. God is searching for them. From the beginning this has been the case. God creates the world, everything is as it should be. Then Adam and Eve, they decide to go their own way. They they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which I think we can all assume is a bit too long for the name of a tree. They eat from that tree, and they immediately, their eyes are open, and they realize that they are what? Naked, yeah. And God starts looking for them. Immediately, God is searching for them. They realize that they are naked, and their first emotions are fear and shame. Shame, which is something I think all of us are very familiar with. They realize that they're naked and they feel shame. So about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, I was working as college minister at a church in Fort Worth. And I wanted to get to know the people that I was working with. So I joined their like college ministry softball team. And that was a great experience, um, except for this one time when I, I wasn't that good, but I got on base. I was on first base and the next person batting hit the ball to a shortstop. So I have to truck it to try to get to second before they can turn a double play. And I slide head first into second so that I can get there safe. Problem is, I was wearing basketball shorts and boxers. Don't jump ahead of the story. And I slide into second base, but those my, my shorts and underwear don't slide with me. So I am laying in front of all the people that I care about under these bright lights. I am laying head first on the ground with the widest parts of my body just gleaming for everyone to see. Technically, they said I was safe. (laughs) But it sure didn't feel like it, right? So I want to talk to all of those of us who feel shame. Shame, the the one thing that I think everybody in this room understands what it feels like. Justine Sacco, about a year and a half ago, she was uh, flying to South Africa to see her family. And right before she left, she made an ill-advised tweet. She tweeted to her 137 followers, I'm headed to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Ha ha, just kidding, I'm white. It was a really dumb tweet. And it cost her everything. Because while she was flying in the air, her tweet got retweeted tens of thousands of times. CNN had a Where Is Justine Sacco's Flight tracker going on their news station. She became the number one trending topic on Twitter. People were calling for her to lose her job, which she did. They were calling for her to be publicly shamed, which she was. When she got to South Africa, her family told her to turn around and go home because she had brought so much shame on the family name. To this day, Justine Sacco says she cannot go on a date with anyone because all they have to do is Google her name. Once again, in an effort to try to make the world a little more kind and less filled with hate, the internet did the exact opposite. Um, Kylie Jenner of Kardashian fame says she wakes up every morning and the first thing that she does is check Google because our greatest fear in the world is that somebody overnight has said something bad about her on the internet. When I first read that article last year, I thought, are you kidding me? Come on. It's the internet. And you're a Kardashian. You know, and think about it. This is somebody who's got everything, right? She's got money and fame and power. And her greatest fear is that she would have shame brought on to her. There's one theologian, a guy named Paul Tillich, who points out that for the longest time, people's greatest concern was guilt, how they stood before God. Then, for the last hundred years, our greatest fear has been death. What's going to happen after we die? But the last couple of decades, our greatest fear has stopped being those two things. And it started being shame. What would happen if everybody found out? What would happen if everybody knew what I've done? And this is not a new problem. From the garden on, God has been trying to pursue us, not in spite of our shame, but honestly... In our shame. He's trying to get us to stop wearing our fig leaves. And in order to tell you this story, I want to tell you a story today that is so good. I, I, am, I am so excited to get to tell you this. This is really good news for you. But in order to tell you that, I have to tell you a story that sounds a bit like a fairy tale. But it's not. It's an actual story that happened in actual historical times and places. Um, so I'm not going to start it off with once upon a time. Instead, I'd like to start it off with once upon a well. Because there's this guy named um, Jacob. Jacob has an older brother named Esau, and Esau is incredibly hairy and manly. And Jacob is not any of those things. Jacob has, uh, when we first meet Jacob, his name means liar, and he is living up to his name well. He has swindled his older hairy brother out of his blessing. He has lied and cheated to get the blessing from, from his father that his father was giving to Esau. And so Esau is going to do the one thing that Esau can do well hunt, and kill. He's going to kill Jacob, his younger brother. And he is like the Ted Nugent of the Old Testament, so he can do it. And so Esau starts chasing Jacob, and Jacob has to run for his life. He goes to another town where he um, knows that some of his distant relatives live at, and he goes to the well, which the well in the ancient world is kind of like the um, town center. But it's more than that. It's where young people would hang out. It's where a lot of people in the Bible even met their wives, like Moses and Isaac. But the most famous person who met their wife in the Bible at a well is Jacob. Because he goes here to get away from Esau, to, to meet you know, people and, and try to make a new life for himself. And as soon as he goes there, he finds the woman, that he's, woman of his dreams. Rachel is her name. And Jacob is smitten by Rachel. He loves Rachel. He, he talks about uh, how, how much he loves Rachel, what he's willing to do to um, marry Rachel. And for us, a lot of us, because we don't know how to read an ancient document, we miss this. Genesis is written before ro- romantic comedies. Genesis is not trying to glorify how much Jacob loves Rachel. It's actually doing the opposite. It's actually saying this is a problem. Because it's talking about um, Rachel, Jacob, as if he's an addict. And Rachel is his drug of choice. Like, he's got to have her. He's looking at this woman and saying, I I need her. If I don't have her, my life will be... That's the way the story is written. So Jacob goes to Rachel's um, dad, Laban, and he says, I want to marry your daughter. And Laban says, well, I I would love for that to happen, but I'm sorry, we have a custom in in our world that uh, we cannot marry the younger daughter before the older daughter is married. So you'll have to marry her first. No, that's not what he says. That's what he should have said. But because lying runs in the family, Laban doesn't say that. Laban says, okay, work for her for seven years, and then you can marry my daughter, Rachel. And if you have your Bibles, turn in Genesis chapter 29. We're going to start in verse 20, where it says, Jacob worked for her for seven years, but the seven years seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed And I want to make love to her because he's so, so romantic. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob. And Jacob lay with Leah. Laban gave a servant girl, uh, Zilpha, to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why did you deceive me? Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger daughter also in return for another seven years of work. So Jacob, if you could go to the next slide, so Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant, Billa, to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for for Leah. There's a lot of ways to make this story funny. It is ripe for comedy. In the morning, there was Leah. But it's not funny. At least it's not to me. Um, when I was growing up, my parents let you know, me read the whole Bible, unedited. And I don't know if that's advisable or not, because there's some disturbing parts of the Bible as a little kid when you're reading, especially this story to me. Um, Leah was described as having weak eyes Rachel is described as being stunning and beautiful and, and a, a great figure. That's how Genesis describes Rachel. But it describes Leah as having weak eyes. What does that even mean? I mean, if anybody in this story has eyesight problems, it seems like it should be Jacob, not Leah, right? Describes Leah as having weak eyes. And that was really disturbing because when I was a kid growing up, I literally had weak eyes. I had these Coke bottle lens glasses that were so thick. To this day, I wear contacts, and it's a plus five prescription. I literally have weak eyes. My glasses were so thick I had to be careful not to look down at the ground too much for fear that the sun might hit the glasses through the right angle and light stuff on fire. It's like the worst X-Men power ever. I'm Cyclops as long as you lay down on the ground in front of me I'll get you real good. Growing up I was this pudgy short kid with thick glasses and the only time girls would ever talk to me is when they wanted to Asked me about my tall, dark, and handsome friend, Bub, and could I please introduce them. I was always Leah. So this story's always been a little bit disturbing to me. Well, Jacob and his wife eventually are going to leave what is Canaan, and they're going to go back to what becomes known as the Promised Land. Or they're going to go back around Israel. They're going to leave their place, and they're going to go back to Canaan. And ultimately, Jacob's going to dig another well. He's going to be famous for this one. He's going to be famous for meeting his wife, for marrying the wrong woman, the woman that he didn't really love or want, and ultimately finally getting Rachel. He's going to go and he's going to resettle, dig another well in a place that becomes known as Samaria. Now, Samaria was where they lived. That's where the people that were the enemies of the Jewish people lived. And they were enemies for a couple of reasons. One is because they had intermarried with people who weren't Jewish. And two, because they changed just a little bit of the Jewish religion. And if you know religious people, and I assume you do know religious people, you know the thing that bugs us the most is when you change just a little bit of something. And so the Jewish people hated the Samaritans more than anybody else, more than even the Roman oppressors. They hated Samaritans. They were sellouts. They had intermarried with pagans. But the Samaritans still worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus, one who was never uh, didn't go along with social conventions in his day, one day had to go through Samaria. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. I want to read this to you. In John chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, Now he had to go through Samaria. I think that's verse 3 actually. What's interesting is Jesus actually didn't have to go through Samaria, not geographically. A lot of people went around Samaria. There were shortcuts that you could go that wouldn't really take much more time. So it's not true, geographically speaking, that Jesus had to go through Samaria. What John is trying to say is that it's because of who he is. He had to go through Samaria. So he came to a part of a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now look at that. We are not used to such blatant racism, right? We don't say it out loud. But John does. He's not going to have this conversation in dog whistles. He's saying out loud, this is the way we actually thought. So just for today, I know we're a progressive, advanced, civilized society and all that. And I know we would never say out loud that there's a group of people or whatever that we hate. But just for today, own it. You don't have to tell me. You don't have to tell anybody else around you. But there's somebody that you're afraid of. There's a group of people that you're anxious about. There's, there's people that when you see, you would cross to the other side. Whatever it is, whatever the demographic is, maybe it's a political ideology, whatever it is. Put those people in this story for yourself and apply this story to you. Because Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so I won't keep getting thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I, uh, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet and um, nosy. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship Him in Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, Am he? I love this story for so many reasons. This is my favorite story in the Gospel of John. John is comparing this story to the story right before it, which is John 3, where a religious leader named Nicodemus comes to Jesus looking for God at night. He's, he thinks Jesus has some notion about God and he's interested in hearing more about Him. So he comes, this respected person, this guy who would have been prestigious and well-known. You would make him an elder. You would want your daughter to date a guy like this. He comes to Jesus at night and Jesus to him is opaque. He isn't he, 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 he isn't very disclosive. He's not very forthcoming. Nicodem- John is comparing Nicodemus to this woman. This five-time... Married, living, living in sin, Samaritan woman. He's comparing those two. Nicodemus is looking for God. This Samaritan woman isn't looking for anything. She's trying just not to be around anybody. And Jesus goes to her and immediately he's crossing gender barriers, he's crossing racial barriers. And, and by the way, racial reconciliation experts love this passage. They say we can learn so much from Jesus in this passage. Because you notice what he does? He, he doesn't come in riding on a, a horse trying to save the day. He comes in and asks help. He asks for her to serve him. He asks to drink after her. He's trying to put himself in a, a place, a vulnerable place. And he's doing this. This is so important. Because this is who Jesus is. This is what the first Christian communities were. You know, when John wrote, writes this, when he wrote that sentence, for Jews did not associate with Samaritans, do you think he smiled when he wrote that? Because this is decades later. He's the last gospel to be written. And he knows Christian communities have broken out all over the world that have both Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans. Do you think as he re- retells the story, as he's writing it down, do you think he smiles at all as he realizes in this moment Jesus isn't just dismantling that racism. He's dismantling all of it. He's not just crossing that track. He's crossing all of it. And what we assume about this woman honestly says as much about us as it does about this woman. Do we assume that she's a five-time divorcee? The text doesn't say that. She might have lost all her husbands to death or maybe war. But there is a chance that there's something there, probably divorce, because it was so easy for men to divorce their wives back in that day. And there is an edge of conviction in her voice as Jesus points out to her, you have had five husbands. The one you're living with now is not your husband. But I love this conversation for so many reasons. One of them is Jesus doesn't have a conversation with just a baseline level of respect. He has a conversation with this woman that would honor any theologian. She asks an honest question and Jesus gives her an honest answer. She's asking and it's a question you all are asking. I've heard us ask it so many times, a thousand different times in a thousand different ways. What she's asking is, Where is God? Where can I find God? We all ask this question, and it is the deepest hunger in our soul. And we go to a lot of wells, wells that ultimately don't work for us. And Jesus answers her question. Chest an honest question, and he gives her an honest answer. He tells them, You know what? The Samaritans are wrong on this. The Jews have this one right. Then he goes on to say, None of that really matters. Because, sister, you don't even know. You're asking, Where can you find God? You have no idea. God, in this moment, is finding you. Isn't this a great story? Jesus tells, not his, the first person Jesus tells He is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the long-awaited, is not the religious leader that's important. It's not even His disciples. It's not Herod. It's not Caesar. The first person God announces who He is to is a five-time married woman who is there in the heat of the day because she's filled with shame. She wants to be alone. Does it surprise anybody else how quickly, Jesus gets into the, this, how quickly Jesus gets into this woman's sex life? Is that surprising to anybody else? And, and to be honest, it doesn't feel very nice. Jesus doesn't always strike me as nice in this moment. I mean, He goes straight to her most raw pain. Let me tell you what He's doing. Jesus is giving her exactly what she wants. I think Jesus gives us all exactly what we want. And this woman says, where can I get this water? Jesus is going to give her this water, but in order for him to give it to her, he's got to let her see where she's trying to get it in her life already. So she says, give me this water. And he says, okay, go get your husband. And immediately, she's like, that's the one thing I wish you wouldn't have brought up. Can I tell you how much as a minister I see this? How much as a minister I see this, not just in other people, but also in the mirror. The wells that we go to, you, whatever, whatever well you go to will ultimately be exposed as not being able to save you. Like, is it your family? If you put that much weight on your family, if you are asking your family to give you your identity, to tell you who you are, you'll be the parent that runs out onto the soccer field yelling at a volunteer ref. If, if you put that much weight on your marriage, you'll crush your marriage. If you put that much weight on your job, you'll take yourself too seriously. Seriously? Ultimately, it will crush the meaning that you could have found in your job. Ironically, alcohol is a great metaphor for this. Alcohol feels like it quenches your thirst for just a moment, but ultimately, it dehydrates you. And Jesus is saying, every well but Him, if you try to get the water that can really satisfy from any other well, every well but Him will do that. And I don't know of a a stronger idol in our culture than what this woman is going through. The thirst to be loved romantically. I, I'm gonna, This story is true. I'm going to change a couple of the details because I don't want um, to, for privacy's sake. My wife and I, we have a friend who has been married five times. And a couple of years ago, um, we start friends and family started noticing that this woman was having some financial problems. It got serious enough that some people stepped in, and Leslie and I stepped in as well, to ask, like, what's going on? And it turned out that this woman had started dating someone. She had met them online. And the more we got to know the story, the more we realized she would never met this person in real life. And then she told us, timidly, that the person that she was dating was a Nigerian prince. And this is 2014. That scam has been out for like 10 years. They've, they've made jokes about it on sitcoms, it's been on countless news stories, and she's seen all that. And so at one point, we're like, this, is, this isn't real. You know this isn't real. Right? But she loved him. He loved her. We just didn't get it. And finally, when the curtain was pulled back, it was so painful. The fall was so painful, but the pull was so strong. Because we're thirsty. We're going to wells that can't satisfy. And it's easy on the outside looking in to see how foolish and dumb that is. But can I tell you, you would do the same thing. If it's the right well, you would do the exact same thing. You know, the thing about this story is, this story, if, you're, if you've got a great marriage, if you, you know, proposed young and you, you died old, if you go on long walks together and you're always emotionally, you know, intimately connected... If you, you know, have great vacation time and 2.3 kids and you do butterfly kisses all the time or whatever, Nicholas Sparks dreams up next, then maybe this story isn't as powerful for you. But for the rest of you, for the rest of us. For those of us who our closest relationships aren't giving us what Hollywood says we should have. Sometimes even our closest relationships have an edge of loneliness in it. Or betrayal. For those of us like that, this is a story for you. And I can't tell you how happy this makes me to tell you this. When Jesus is sitting here on this day, at this well, talking with this woman, who had obviously been left alone and unloved and unwanted several times in her life. Can I tell you what makes this story so, so powerful? They're at a well, Jacob's well, named after this story. Do you want to know who Jesus' great-great-great-great-grandmother was? Leah. It wasn't Rachel. It was Leah, the unwanted and unloved one. Rachel had two kids. She had Joseph and Benjamin. Leah had more than two kids, but one of them was named Judah. This is why we named our newest kid Judah. Judah. And when we talk about how Jesus is the Lion of Judah, that's great. But never forget, He comes through the line of Judah. Jesus, in this day, is sitting on the well, talking to a woman who's felt unwanted and unloved. But He did not... He, this is who God is. Of course God is on the lookout for her. God came through a woman like her. So, every year I go to um, California on a study break in July. You should give your preacher a study break. It's really helps a lot. Um, and Josh would use it really well. But anyway, I went, I went to California to stay at the Glendale Church of Christ. I sleep in their copy room for like 10 days. I, I literally sleep in a room with a copy machine because there's a seminary close by and I use their library to study in. Anyway, I'm flying from Dallas to LA and um, on the flight with me, I'm just reading the commentary of Gospel of John. And there's a pregnant woman in the seat next to me. My wife was pregnant at the time, so I struck up a conversation with her. And after about five minutes into the conversation, um, I asked her, well, what do you do for a living? And she said, well, um, I can't do what I do for a living anymore because I'm pregnant. But I was an exotic dancer. Then she says, what do you do for a living? (laughs) Which I was like, well, I'm a preacher, and she says, well, what are, you, what are you doing? I tell her, I'm studying, doing a thing on the Gospel of John. I'm going out here to study on that. She says, what's the Gospel of John? I said, well, there's four different stories of the Gospel, the stories of Jesus in the Bible. And I'm doing one of them. And she said, what are you looking at right now? And it was this story. And she said, well, well tell me about it. So I told the modern day equivalent of this story to, that, to this woman. And afterwards, she said, I love that story. I'd like to hear more stories. And so that is the story of how I gave an exotic dancer um, my preacher friend Chris Seedman's cell phone number because she lived in the same area as him. And I tell you that, one, as an apology to Chris, first off, but second, also, because in that moment, you know, there's those times where you, you know, think, maybe God's up to something, and there are other times where you're like, thanks for the softball, God. Because in that moment, I had this distinct sense God was pursuing her. That God is doing what He's doing through, for all of us. In that moment, God was pursuing her, and you can call her lost if you want, but don't you dare do it in a way that forgets that lost means loved. Lost means someone is looking. Not not around your shame, not despite your shame, but right in the middle of it. The very thing that you'd like to hide the most from God might be the very place that God is trying to meet you at. Because you know what happens? This woman, she actually asked Jesus, Are you greater than our father Jacob? To which the answer is, yes. Yes, he's greater than our father Jacob. And after the conversation happens, after the dust settles, after she realizes, I'm not unwanted and unloved, that God had actually chosen her, she has a new thirst. Because the story ends like this. Then leaving her water jar... The woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. You know the reason that she's there at noon. The reason that she came in the heat of the day by herself. Because she didn't want to talk about everything she'd ever done. She was ashamed of everything she'd ever done. But after Jesus, after she realized the true nature of God, her past became her testimony. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And the whole town comes. Now, her shame, she doesn't bury. She leads with it. The love of God moves her past her shame. So Jesus dies naked. It's important for you to remember that. The crucifixion, despite what your religious pictures tell you, did not happen that way. The crucifixion John wants people to know was a token, was a thing of sh- great shaming and power. I mean, it was the way that Rome told everybody, "This is what happens if you rebel against us. We will put you at eye level on, on, on the side of the street where your friends and family can see you. So no matter what religious pictures you've seen in the past, you need to know the Son of God left the world the way he entered it. It was shame. There's a reason Paul would need to say things like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because the gospel at its very heart was God going to the very heart of shame. The God was dishonored. That's who God is. It is God reversing what happened in the curse. The fig leaf that we so readily reach for, God dismantled. And so, Corey Tinboom the famous Holocaust survivor, she said that um, the hardest part of the Holocaust for her was not watching friends and family die. It wasn't the slow starvation. It wasn't even their cruelty. The hardest part of the Holocaust for her was Wednesdays. Because that's when the Nazi guards did what they called hygiene inspections. Where they called all the women out, made them strip off their clothes, and they had to stand there for long periods of time in front of the Nazi guards for hygiene inspection. It was, took a great psychological toll on them. And one day, towards the end of her sister Betsy's life, they're having to go out, they're having to parade in front of the Nazi guards once more naked. And her sister Betsy says to her, as they're standing there naked before the guards, terrified, afraid, and dying, her sister Betsy says to her, Remember, Corey, they took Jesus' clothes too. Remember, Jesus died naked. And she never felt shamed about it again. Do you realize this is who God is? Do you realize when God is having this conversation with the Samaritan woman, this is where this story is going to end up? He meets her in his shame, but he's not going to leave her in her shame. He wants her to know she's loved even in her shame. And ultimately, God is going to go to the cross and endure shame. But John has a different word for the shame of God than we would ever dream of using. You know what he calls it? Glory. This is the glory of God. His is the shining that your shame cannot extinguish. He is the door where you thought there was only wall. He is what comes after deserving. And while he may be like a king, kings are not like him. You don't, church, so much find God. We have a finding God. So I would like to invite the prayer warriors to take their places around the room at this time. If there's somebody here, and and maybe you have a, a sense of God is wanting to do something in your life. Maybe you have an overwhelming sense of gratitude and thankfulness after this past week. Maybe it's that you have experienced shame, and you sense this morning the solidarity of God with you in that. Would you go to these prayer warriors while together we stand and worship